0: Hiding behind anything is not only not safe, it's one of the most dangerous places to be in a community because what it means is you're alone. The most powerful place you can be is exposed, is vulnerable, is out in the open where people can see you for all your goodness and all your flaws because that's where you have the greatest amount of support. That's where people will trust you. That's where people will come and have your back when you need them.
1: Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your Daily Helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a phenomenal guest to share with you today. Ron Carucci is a two-time TEDx speaker the best-selling author of eight books and popular contributor at Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Ron led a 10-year longitudinal study on executive transition to find out why more than 50% of leaders fail within their first 18 months of appointment. He uncovered the four differentiating capabilities that set leaders apart, and these findings are highlighted in his groundbreaking Amazon number one best-selling book, Rising to Power, co-authored with Eric Hansen. Ron Carucci is also the co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. In addition to being a regular contributor to the Harvard Business Review and Forbes, as stated, he has also been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Inc., Business Week, Smart Business, and Thought Leaders. Ron, welcome to
0: the show. Dr. Richard, great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: So there's so many different areas we can delve into. You've done so many different things. Your books are so highly regarded. You've done the TED Talks. But I want to take a step back, as I often do with my guests, and find out what were the things, as you were developing along your path, that were key
0: influences on you that really propelled you to what you're doing today? I actually began my career in a very different space than the one I'm in today before I got into organizational psychology. I actually began my career in the arts in new york um and while i was enjoying some great opportunities to work my friends would be envious of me looking at some of the assignments i was getting and jobs i was getting in new york and i i'd be thinking to myself oh my gosh i have to do the same thing eight times a week for how long I i was blessed to learn early on that i bored easily so i eventually left new york took a break from my training there and went overseas to work with a company that also used the arts and media to do training. We had a contract with the military and state department and a variety of agencies overseas. And there was a, a point at which we were in Dachau, of all places, at the chapel in Dachau. Now, back then, we didn't... The words diversity and inclusion weren't a thing, but I think that would have, would have been what this workshop would have been called. We would, dealing with differences. We had military, state department, government officials, Germans, Americans uh, in the room. The curtain had not yet fallen, but it was soon to happen. And the East-German-West-German relationships were starting to become a thing. Uh, And in the middle of this conversation, we were processing some of the exercises we had done. And a young soldier, probably not much older than me, stood up and in a deep, raw claim said, I'm just so tired of being trained to hate. And I was mesmerized by by him. First, I, I was shocked that something I had done made him think that. But more importantly, I was shocked that he was willing to say it in front of so many people. So when the workshop was over, I invited him to go out for a beer because when you're in Munich, you go out for beers. I just wanted to hear more of his story. And I think that began a really long pivot for me to realize that, you know, telling great stories is an interesting way to make a living. But engaging other people's stories and helping them write their own story better, I could spend a career doing that and not get bored. And so that was a pretty formative experience for me. I don't know that I could have named it at the time, but it it set in motion for me, a passion and a love to help others, leaders, individuals, organizations, you know, take responsibility and for for picking up the pen uh, of the next chapter of their story and writing it uh, in a way they probably haven't yet imagined. That's so powerful. And what an
1: interesting experience. Did you get a beer with with the guy from Germany? I think we got several.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, I, I, it, it never occurred to me that there, there was a way for me to use my skill set to provoke others to think about their own life. That hadn't occurred to me before. I mean, even though, even the, the company that I was with, that was the whole point of how they used media and the arts and story to do that. It, wasn't, it didn't occur to me that it actually had the kind of impact I'd want to have. And sitting and talking with him that he would disclose some of his frustrations with his role, that he would want something different for his life. It was such a life-giving evening for me. I think he appreciated the fact that somebody listened to him uh, and somebody cared enough to engage him. But I was so grateful that he trusted me with um, such a sacred part of his, you know, that he kept private. Uh, it just created this a hunger in me to think about, wow, what if, what if that was how I spent every day of my
1: life? So let's talk about how you then transitioned into spending
0: your time doing just that, which fed that hunger for you. Well, so I think for the next several years I stayed in Europe and then I came back to the United States, found out that organizational behavior was a field, <laughs> um, got my graduate degree. I started my, I started my degree, grad school in your field, in clinical psych, but I just quickly realized I don't know that I want to deal with people's individual crap. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I switched to Org Psych, and then I found out they all bring that crap to work. Uh, so now I get it in mass instead of on an individual basis. But I, you know, took a job into inside inside organizations, working with leaders and organizations in, in communities within them. And then I I realized that you know ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land, and I think there's a good reason for that. And so I learned that being inside organizations and trying to tell the truth and raise honest conversation about difficult issues from inside was probably not going to be a great career maker for me. Um, And so I tried external consulting and doing that work from the outside. I realized if I'm going to live out my passion for a human endeavor in organizations, I'm going to have to do it by not being part of one. Uh, And that was okay. I, I realized that what got me in trouble inside organizations got me well paid and respected outside them. So I thought, well, why fight that? Um, and I spent wonderful years in consulting in a, in a wonderful consulting firm in New York City. And then about 14 years ago, a couple of friends and I decided to go off on our own and start Navalent. Perfect.
1: And we'll talk a little bit more about Navalent as we roll through. But one of the things that I want to touch on is I know that you have done an extensive st- study, a 10 year longitudinal study on why leaders fail. And I think a lot of people listening to this would be very curious in those results.
0: You know, it it started out personally, Dr. Richard. We've known for more than 20 years that about half of those who take on broader assignments and organizations fail within their first 18 months. Um, I didn't know this when uh, we were working on a very large transformational project for a a wonderful, large company, a client of ours. At the end of which, one of the young leaders who had taken a part in uh, the work who everybody assumed was high potential and had great talent and would go very far in his career was offered the chance to take on a much bigger role in this new, in this new organization we had built. Nobody was surprised. Everybody assumed he would be a rising star. And about uh, nine or ten months later, I saw him in my caller ID and I was excited. I assumed he was calling to uh, check in, say hi, report all the great things they had done. But he was calling to tell me he'd been fired, um, and I was shocked. I could. Couldn't catch my breath. I, was, I couldn't imagine what could have gone wrong. How could we have misjudged his potential so greatly? But I, you know, a couple hours later, the CEO called as well to also let me know they let him go and to more than subtly infer that some of the responsibility was mine for not having prepared him better. And I was devastated. I couldn't stand the notion that someone was holding me responsible or that I may have actually contributed to setting this phenomenally promising young leader up to fail. So I said, can we, can we come back in Uh, You know, on our dime, can we come sniff around and find out what what could have gone wrong here? Where where did this go sideways? Because I don't ever want to I don't ever want a phone call like this again. Well, that investigation is what led us to our 10 year study with Dr. Richard, only to find out that 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 young promising leader was just one more statistic. And so I thought we've got to stop this madness. We've got to stop it being okay, perfectly okay, for organizations to put people on pathways to their own demise you know, label them high potential, label them promising, label them ready to skip level, you ready for the next coming, um, and suddenly put them in a place where they preside over their career's demise. It seems cruel. It seemed, you know, unnecessary. And so we, you know, we had 2,700 interviews of data over a 10-year period. We poured through them to find out I wanted every single landmine possibly in their way, identified, uncovered, and addressed. And And what was actually... Even more promising, we weren't quite expecting this, but the data not only revealed to us many, many of the landmines in the way of leaders as they ascend, but if about half or so of them were failing, we wanted to know what the other half doing? Those that actually could stick the landing uh, at a higher altitude and thrive. What set them apart? What was it that allowed them to be so influential? So the great news was we were actually able to isolate very clear patterns among those leaders that were rising up, taking on broader assignments, and thriving. And that was very exciting because while you know my research team got a little bit fatigued uh, after 99 regression analysis, I kept making them go back, and they said, "Okay, Ron, it's not going to change. This is the data." There were four very consistent patterns that rose to the top. No matter how you cut the analytics, the statistics always put these four patterns. In the top, but I wanted to better say, well, can we say that three of them are okay, or if you if you're good at two and okay at two, that's okay. But the reality was, unless you were good at all four of these, you were in the failure group. There was no other way around it. I didn't want to say that, but the good news was you could learn them. These were not things that some mysterious genetic code was responsible for, or that you were somehow fortunate to be born with. These were all things you could learn, um, and that was very exciting to to learn that. Uh, You know, we, we we could prepare leaders well in advance for bigger assignments and have them succeed.
1: Hey, guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. Take us through what these four
0: patterns are that a leader has to have in order to succeed in their organization. And, and I would say, um, in one of my TED Talks on influence actually covers these four patterns, Dr. Richard. I think, I think they, they're, they're true in all of life. I think all of us, uh, in whatever place of influence we're trying to have impact uh, in our family, in a school, in a community, uh, these apply. So the first one is context. the the ability to to look around you and read what is happening in the world around me, in the environment around me, in the situation around me, and that requires my influence. Too often leaders show up with this mysterious mandate, I'm here to make change, or I've got this thing I've got to get done, um, without reading the context. And so context means you're curious. It means you understand that the environment you're in has as much to change in you as you have to change in it. So if you're a school teacher coming into a new classroom, if you're a a parent moved to a new neighborhood, if you're a leader presiding over lots of people or a few, when you enter the story, the story you know has a history before you study it study it. ask questions be curious find out why why things are the way they are and learn to adapt accordingly. Don't just come in and slap on your answers to questions people may not be asking. The second was breath you know in organizations, communities, families, they're all naturally fragmenting things, right? You know, centrifugal force that pulls people apart is far more natural in community than cohesion or centripetal force that brings people together. Um, As organizations and communities get bigger, people pull apart further into their little cliques or silos or camps or whatever the groups happen to be. And leaders understand that in order to get any kind of transformation to happen, in order to have any lasting impact, you have to create cohesion. You have to stitch the seams that naturally appear between people. And these leaders were able to see the places where seams were strained, where relationships were strained, where differences or perceived differences were appearing between people. And then and then the community or the organization or the family was not thriving the way it could. And they were able to build bridges. These leaders were able to understand how to connect people, fi- help people find common ground, and bring people toward each other instead of apart from each other. The third was called Connection. And not surprisingly, uh, this is about relationships. So these people could form really deep, trusting and authentic relationships with people above them, people who are peers, and people who reported to them. They were um, seen as people uh, you could trust, who are credible, who are competent. But the most important feature of their relationships is that they prioritized their network, not according to those they could get something from, but according to those they could help succeed. These were the people everybody knew were out to make other people successful, to make other people thrive. Other people's agendas were their priorities. Our greatest connections happen when people believe that we have their back, when people believe that we really have their best interest at heart. And so, you know, as you're forming relationships or building your networks or building your customer base, be sure that people know you're not on a take. People, be sure that you're not just trying to get something from them. Make it very clear that you genuinely want to help others. Thrive. and lastly it was choice so these people could make really hard decisions so often in life we're so interested in pleasing people and so interested in making sure other people like us that we dole out way too many yeses we we're overly agreeing we're 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 loath to say no and if you're an entrepreneur you especially know how difficult it is to say no Um, but these people could make hard choices they knew that too many yeses meant you diluted the focus of a community you diluted resources. You confuse people. You created competing priorities. But these leaders were not afraid to narrow the focus of those they led, um, and they weren't afraid to say no to even great ideas, so that the best ideas that you've already committed to could prevail. And so, if you're struggling to say no, if you're struggling to to limit, you know where you spend your time or where others spend their time or what you commit to because of some need to please people or some need to the fear, you know, classic FOMO fear of missing out know that your diluting factor of your own energy and your own time is going to be short-lived, that it's really important that you're able to make hard trade-offs in life between not good and bad ideas, but between good and great ideas.
1: Really interesting. And so I want to jump into the flip side here. If we've identified these four, four patterns, these four factors that somebody has to have to be successful, what did your research find are the most prevalent traits or characteristics in those that
0: fail? Or was it simply just not having these four things? Well, in our study, I would say the absence of those created other problems, right? So when you fail to read context, you look arrogant. When you're unable to make choice, you look weak. Unable to build connections, you look selfish and self-interested. Um, unable to create breath, you looked narrow-minded or deeply siloed or, or um, unable to build make connections. So Usually, there was some resulting other behavior that prevented those from appearing. The reality is, but nobody tells you that those things are important, right? You just you think your technical capability or your your immediate stakeholders that you um, need something from. We naturally make choices as we rise up or become more influential, not in the direction of those four things. I think one of the things uh, we were most surprised to find in the research when we looked at the issue of power. And we expected to find all of the typical trappings of, of power in its abuse, whether it be self-interest or a self-indulgence, you know, the classic you know, morality or ethical failures where people overindulged power uh, to a significant degree. And certainly those were there, but by far those were not the most predominant abuses of power. We were shocked to find that the greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. Hmm. People were too afraid to use the power that came with their role, so they they didn't use it at all. Uh, and, the, and they forfeited incredible opportunities that their positions afforded them to have phenomenal impact. Um, and as we dug deeper into what that was, we found deep narratives operating in leaders' heads that said nobody will take you seriously, um, you're not credible. We found widespread uh, imposter syndrome um, and the anxiety that comes with that. Um, and so, you know, the absence of that was using your position to purchase loyalty, to, you know, broker agreements to mutual support, uh, you know, sort of institutionalized collusion. We see parents do this with kids all the time, right? They don't want to be the hard parents so they they bribe their kids or they wanna, you know, give their kids everything they didn't have. We see school teachers do this when they get fatigued in disciplining their kids. And so when you put that power down in whatever form it comes in in your world, you're mortgaging your influence. You're mortgaging your credibility. Uh, and it's very difficult to regain once you've done that over a period of time. Um, and so my encouragement to folks who struggle with using influence and power is to dig deep, to find out what are the narratives? What are the, the stories that form your understanding of your own influence and your own agency in your life? Because somewhere there's a tape that's playing that's telling you not to be influential, that your, your power is not wanted or welcomed or not going to make a difference that you're an imposter, that people are going to find you out. Uh, and that hiding behind some veneer, hiding behind some illusion of uh, credibility is a safer place than the vulnerability uh, that comes with being exposed for being a human. And you know, the thing I, I, I want leaders to understand is that hiding behind anything is not, is not only not safe, it's one of the most dangerous places to be in a community, because what it means is you're alone. The most powerful place you can be is exposed is vulnerable, is out in the open, where people can see you for all your goodness and all your flaws, because that's where you have the greatest amount of support. That's where people will trust you. That's where people will come and have your back when you need them. Um, it's, for many leaders, counterintuitive. Uh, they think that once you're a leader or once you're in charge or once you own your own business, people expect you to be the answer ATM and have all the answers. Um, and that's not the role of a, a good leader of any kind, whether you're you know in a school, a classroom, a family, a community. A, a boy scout troop or an organization to answer your job is to create other people who are the smartest kids in the class not to be the smartest kid in the class
1: uh, that makes so much sense and, and ron i wanted to give you a minute to talk about your number one best selling book on amazon rising to power which i know delves into this but take us through uh, a little bit of a deep dive in terms of what we're going to get aside from you know this t- this 10 year study uh, when when we read
0: this book, well, one of the first things that's fun about the book, we built this fictional narrative. We built sort of this archetypal organization of characters. So half of the book is uh, a novel. it's um a story that carries you through the content. um and so you can see the 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 good things and the struggling things in action. And so for those who really learn well from story, who learn well from before it feels safe enough to indulge your own story, looking at the story of others, um, the book can be really helpful that way. And in between the story, we, we, we didn't structure the book around the four answers, right? So the four patterns. We, we could have done that. Um, maybe commercially it would have been a better idea. But I didn't want to be another, another book that said, here's four secrets, four steps, four laws, four rules. Because I don't know that these are the four. They're certainly very important four. But we structured the book around the actual journey. We wanted to, uh, we wanted leaders who were experiencing the disorienting effects of a higher altitude. So we wanted to follow leaders on the journey as they ascended to broader pieces places of influence. We wanted to help them feel accompanied, like as if we were their Sherpa, uh, when they discovered the altitude sickness of a higher altitude, the disorienting effects of having more power and influence, what it was like to feel like your life is now playing out on a jumbotron, where, you know. Everything you do is publicly visible, where there's a, a megaphone strapped to your mouth 24 7, and everything you do is amplified. Everything you do is misinterpreted or, or overly interpreted. Where suddenly your relationship set has been redefined. People who are your peers now report to you, people who are your bosses are now your peers. Um, your, your, your network has been redefined, and the rules of the game are different now. Um, and so we wanted to unpack all of those landmines for leaders and help them feel like we were walking with them you know, to this new place of influence and helping them discover and see every potential risk around the corner so that they could avoid, you know, some of the missteps that others have have been derailed by. Uh, and it was very rewarding. You know, uh, HBR named us as one of 2016's ideas that mattered most for our research. Um, we've gotten extraordinary uh, responses from readers who have used the material to guide them through really big transitions in their career and have found it you know, invaluable to them as they um, have avoided some of those landmines and also been able to stick the landing and thrive in places where they really wanted to have greater impact and really wanted to um, make a difference, and now they can.
1: Fantastic. And we will definitely have links to that book, as well as your other books, in the show notes and in the Daily Helping app. And I also wanted to, you teased it earlier, on I wanted to spend a little time talking about Navalent and and what you're doing there with that organization, how that helps people.
0: Yeah, so we um, have the incredible privilege, my colleagues and I at Navalent traipsing organizations of all kinds every day, startups, mid-caps, large companies, communities, universities, of all kinds, working alongside those who are trying to affect some type of transformational change, some type of audacious ambition, um, and have either gotten sideways or in a ditch or haven't quite figured out how to embark on that journey, and we get the the joy of con- helping them construct uh, a carefully thought through uh, process for how they're going to affect the impact they want to have uh, on their communities or other organizations, um, and go on that journey with them. It's a you know it's it's a a great privilege to be able to wake up every day in our career and in our firm and think about the fact that we're going to leave the world better than we found it that day. That we get to lead, make somebody's world a better place than we found it.
1: I absolutely love that. And Ron, we're we're at time, and this has been a phenomenal discussion. I'm sure everybody got a ton out of our chat today. As you know, I like to wrap up every episode by asking my guests a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping, the single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after listening to today's episode?
0: Um, you know, I think as uh, my mentor said to me many, many years ago, Uh, As I began my career, she, you know, she's still, and she's still my mentor today. I just spent the weekend with her, as a matter of fact. Um, She's a phenomenal woman, almost 80 years old, but going strong. But she said to me, Nothing in life is irrevocable except death. And at a time in our careers and in our lives where we spend too much time wondering, second guessing, fearing failure, worried about skinning our knees, apprehensive and second guessing our own ambitions and desires. Um, I wish I had not done that. I wish I had been more courageous and less anxious about trying things. You know, she she always says to her, she's a professor at university, she always says to her students, your career is not about a linear path. Your career is not some predictable uh, upward climb in a ladder. Your career is about going through open doors when they're open. Um, and if you never go through the open door, um, you'll never know. And if you go through the open door and it winds up being not what you thought, you can find another open door. But you've got to stay open to the world around you and, and try and not worry so much about skinning your knees. Um, you, you, life gives you do-overs. You know, there are some things, very, very critical things that, for which there really is only one shot, but those are far more rare than we think they are. And if we allow ourselves those do-overs, uh, we'll try things more courageously and more joyfully.
1: I love it. So well said. Ron, where can people find you?
0: Love to keep the conversation going with your listeners, Doctor Richard. So come to visit us at Navalent n a v a l e n t dot com. Uh, we've got some great videos and resources, and a wonderful blog. We write about all kinds of fun stories about people. Uh, we have a free ebook for you if you want to learn about how we lead transformation or how we architect change journeys. Navalent slash transformation. You can find that free ebook there, and you can put that in your show notes as well can also find me on Twitter at Ron Carucci, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. So we'd love to keep the conversation going.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that. And for everybody listening in the car or at the gym, we're going to have links to everything Ron Carucci has stated in the show notes and in the Daily Helping app available on iTunes and in the Google Play Store. Well, Ron, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Dr. Richard, great to, uh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. And thanks to each and every one of you who chose to listen to this episode today if you like what you heard go subscribe to the show on itunes and leave us a five-star review because this is what helps other people find the podcast but most importantly go out there today and do something nice for someone else even if you don't know who they are and post it in your social media feeds using the hashtag #MyDailyHelping helping because the happiest people are those that help others